0: Harry Cattell never wanted to join the army. Having been born into a highly successful and affluent family, he spent his early years in Newcastle before moving to Sydney to attend boarding school. He had dreams of becoming an engineer, but a series of world events was to change that.
1: I was born in Maitland, East Maitland Hospital. We moved quickly from Maitland to Newcastle, and uh, we lived at a place called Bar Beach. It was just after the war, so materials were hard to get. Mum and Dad had built this home at Bar Beach in Newcastle, which is now a very uh, affluent suburb of Newcastle. In those days it was just very average. And I went to Newcastle East Public School. I did pretty well at primary school, actually, and I got into the A class at uh, Newcastle Boys High did all the subjects, I did French, Latin, German, Maths one, Maths two, English, Chemistry, Physics, all the all the difficult subjects. So after Newcastle Boys High I was there for three years and mum and dad were going overseas to, on business mainly, and uh, they decided I had to go to boarding school. So I went to uh, Cranbrook School in Sydney as a boarder. My two younger sisters went to Church of England Girls Grammar School in Newcastle as boarders. My young brother went and lived with my aunt and uncle in Sydney. And um, my sister Carol, by that time, was engaged to a chap who had, was working for my father at the time. So she, but she had gone overseas with mum and dad.
0: But everything changed when the economy crashed in the early 60s.
1: I had a different plan when I was at school, because Mum and Dad were very wealthy at that time. But all of a sudden, a credit squeeze happened in uh, 1962, which was like what happened in 2008. And our company went broke. Mum and Dad um, kept me at boarding school for the last six months of 62, which they really couldn't afford. But it was obvious that the plans I I had for myself, being from a wealthy family, were no longer longer viable, and uh, I, from a kid that was going to travel the world and then come back, go to uni, and take over the company, I now found out that I had to uh, I had to work. So um, I left home. At, I was just, just before my seventeenth birthday. I left home and I got a job uh, in Newcastle at Ganinns and Company as a trainee metallurgist. But because I'd been at boarding school, many of my friends lived up on the north shore of Sydney, Palm Beach, that sort of area. So I decided to come to Sydney and I went to work in a foundry in McAvoy Street, Alexandria. I transferred and I went to to college here in Sydney. Um, And of course by now I'm 18, 19, of course you had to register for national service. And so I did, 22nd of March was my birthday and it was one of the days that were pulled out of the hat fait accompli, but I didn't have to go in the army and, until I, as long as I kept passing exams, I didn't have to go into the army. So I kept passing exams, didn't I? And the final exams were uh, November 1969. That was when I would finish my final uh, course in metallurgy. Sure enough, in about, must have been September 69, I got a letter to attend a medical at uh, Wynyard in Sydney, and I think this appointment was about six or seven at night. So I'd stopped at the pub in town and had a couple of schooners, so I was probably a little bit merry, a bit lightheaded, and it was a young lady, I guess a uni student, was doing the interviews, and I remember she asked me what uh, colour eyes I had, I said yellow, She said, what "What religion are you? I said, Buddhist. And she didn't even question any of this. Then she'd finish me filling out the paperwork. Then you go and see some bloke in a white coat who makes you cough and looks down your throat and all that sort of stuff and measure your height and your weight and that's it, then you go. Later on in life, I found out that she'd written these things down because when I was in Vietnam, the, the second commanding officer had come to me one day and he said, Kerry, did you become a Buddhist in country or were you already a Buddhist? So yeah, so that was that time.
0: And it wasn't long after he signed up that he was called upon to serve.
1: I then got a letter from them saying, I had to report to uh, Inogra Barracks on the 27th of January, 1970. So the 26th of January is Australia Day. I'd finished work in the December sometime before Christmas Day. Gone home to mum and dad's place at Kira, uh, and they had organised for a bus to pick me up early on the morning of the 27th. And there was about three others at the bus stop that were also going to join the army.
0: While some of those who were called up were looking forward to serving, it was not the way Kerry saw his life going. I'd studied all this metallurgy.
1: I'd worked hard, I'd I'd worked for a pittance for those seven years. Struggled to survive, I'm now nearly 24. And I go from, I was just about to earn $112 a week. I was gonna be a millionaire. And and they're gonna take that off me for two years and took me in the army at $32 a fortnight. Plus clothes and full board, but (laughs) I was going to go to the States, come back through Europe, get to Tokyo for the 64 Olympics, come home, do an economics degree and tell Dad and Uncle it was time for me to take the company over when I was about 28. Because all that fell over. I had no want to be in the Army and I
0: had no want to go to a war. But Kerry knew he had no choice, so he tried to make the most of the experience.
1: So I did my recruit training, and during, uh, sorry, core training, and during core training, um, I got interviewed by a, a, a British exchange officer, a major, and he said to me, Well, we've got a couple of postings for you, Kerry, would you like to go to Vietnam or Malaysia? And I thought, hmm. Malaysia, there's not really shooting at each other there. I think I'll, I think I'll take Malaysia, sir. And he said, um, I think you'd be more suited for Vietnam. I said, oh, okay. Off, I went straight to Canungra, did my jungle warfare training for three weeks, and then left Canungra straight to South Head. I'm sitting at South Head, checked in, taking my uniform off, put my civvies on. I thought I'll go down the Watego Bay pub for a beer. I'm just walking out the gate, and this, I don't know what he was, private corporal on the gate says, where are you going? I said, going down to Watto Bay pub for a beer. He said, Camp, camp's closed, can't go. I said, what do you mean? He said, it's closed mate, nobody's allowed out. I thought, I wonder what's going on? Got back to the little room where things were going on. They said, get your uniform get your gear packed. Bus is coming at eight o'clock. We're going to Vietnam tonight.
0: I thought, that's a ripper. <laughs> and before he knew it, Kerry had landed in Vietnam. It's the strangest thing when I got to the DAT. We all get off the Caribou
1: in Luscombe and everybody's got somebody there to meet them, you see. So I'm standing there with my gear, and, you know, your green bag and polyesters and my slouch hat on. Everybody, they're all gone and there's one land rover left, this bloke in it, and he's got his bloke on board and this warrant officer says to me, where you going, son? I said, I'm with uh, DeVint, sir. He said, uh, jump in. He said, that's near headquarters company. He said, I'll, I'll drop you off. I, w- I walk in, drop my bag, and I go to the office. There's an office that says admin, right? So I go to this admin office. This bloke called Tommy Rencher, took me around to be the boss, Captain Cunningham, Davey Cunningham. Cunningham didn't salute, put his hand out and shook my hand. He said, Who are you? I said, I could tell sir, I said I've just flown. He said we weren't expecting you till next week. I thought bugger it, I've got it a week of the again. <laughs> so he says to me, he says we're just going down a while long. We got these, we got these blokes in a bunker under a house. They're operating a radio set there for the VC. He said we're going down and get them out, and then we're going to blow the house up. He said get, just grab yourself a rifle out of the store next door, get yourself some ammo. Go and get your greens on, That go. you can take that tent down there. He said, we're going in half an hour. Oh, okay, said I, so we go and get ready. I come back up. He said, I've had a thought about it. He said, you're probably a bit new. He said, you better stay in the dat. we'll go down and do it. So I just sat there for the afternoon and sure enough, about five o'clock, they turned up with part of the house. But uh, the boss thought he had lost one of our blokes because Apparently one bloke wouldn't come out of the bunker. Apparently Peter jumped down in the bunker to get this bloke out and there was a shot. The boss thought he had lost one of his guys but actually it was the, the VC decided to commit suicide. So that was my introduction day one, Vietnam.
0: After the shock of his first day, Kerry began his new life in a war zone.
1: And so I'm hanging around the DAT from the 17th of November. It would have been about a week later the boss came to me and said, What do you want to do, Kerry? And I said, I don't know, what do you got? And he said, how would you like to be the counterintelligence operator in Tuk And I said, well, that sounds fine. What have I got to do? He said he said, what you do is you, you, know, you get all get as much information as you can from the local people. You let go up Sunday and you come back into Newidad every Saturday. I want you back here Saturday night so you have a drink with the boys and you go back Sunday so you don't lose contact with the unit. I said, that's fine. this compound was about, again, two or 300 metres in diameter. We were surrounded by barbed wire. We were also surrounded by a minefield. My job was to uh, go out every day and travel around all the, uh, the police stations village chiefs, villagers. There was a special one called the police field force, which was like a police that operated outside the villages in the, into the rubber and towards the jungle. Uh, the chief of that was a chap called Wen Mao. Mao. Mao was probably about three or four years older than me. We became good friends. He spoke a little English. And together, we worked together with him teaching me Vietnamese and how things worked in Vietnam. And I taught him how English and how things worked in in my operations and we worked together. And then I'd go to other compounds um, and I'd just visit them, do things, talk to people, just get as much information as I could. And every night I would report back to Nui Dad over a, a secure radio, what was going on and what I thought was happening and where enemy concentrations might be or might not be. Try and give the battalions and and anybody else out there operating some, some clues as to what might be happening. I also, you know, I made a lot of friends too. One story I tell, I think it's a great story of life. I was in Nai village, and all these villages apart from Binh Jha were pretty much at night time under the influence of the Viet Cong. They all had family in the Viet Cong, so, you know, it's quite understandable. You know, I, one one story. I, I, I this is in my imagination, but it's, I believe that in my area the war stopped at lunchtime on Saturday to allow VC families to get together, and as long as they were gone by first thing Monday morning, because there seemed to be no military action between lunchtime Saturday and first thing Monday morning. But this one day, I was. In a village in in Niger village, and I'm sitting in front of a drink stand on the side of the road, and I hear this terrible coughing coming from this, this house, and I uh, go over to the door and I say to the lady, "What's going on?" She says, "My son, he's really ill." And I go in, and there's this young young boy in his teens, and he's like nothing left of him. I didn't know what was wrong with him, so. I went and got my mate who was a medic down at the training team at Bin Bar, to come up and have a look. And he said, I think the boy's got tuberculosis. I said, oh, okay. So I said to the parents, why can't you get him into hospital? They said, oh, there's no beds, we can't get him in. The closest hospital that could treat him was in was in uh, Saigon. And I thought, well, we've got a hospital in the uh, town of Tao, Why can't we do something? So I went to the doctor at Nui Dan, and he said, no, 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 we won't treat anybody for an illness like that. If it was a ward injury, yeah, we'd do something, but not for that. So I thought, that's pretty poor. So I went to a captain who was a good mate of mine who ran the psychological warfare team. And I said, look, you know, you want to get the people on side. You've got to do nice things for them. He's this kid that he's dying. Maybe we can do something. And he did. He got the, he got the child in a hospital in Saigon. And a bit later, I went to see them and the son had died. They invited me to home and treated me with great respect and, and care and I said, but I was unable to help you. And they said, yeah, but at least you tried. They said, without you, we didn't have any hope and you gave us some hope.
0: After almost a year in Vietnam, Kerry got the news he'd been longing to hear.
1: They decided probably around about mid-year, about July, that we were gonna pull out, I think. And we were told to pull up our minefield around our compound, so the engineers came in and drove their mine destroyers around and around, blowing up mines all the time. Mid to late September, I think, 71. And that's when we got pulled out of Duktan and back to Nui Dat and I got told I was going home on the 7th of October. It all happened pretty quickly, really. I got to, I think I was home in the, back in the DAT for two weeks. So I must have got back to the DAT about the 22nd or 23rd of September. Packed my gear and was put in a plane back to Sydney. And when I got to Sydney, when I got to Mascot, we all arrived about 11 o'clock at night. And they put us through customs. I thought that was pretty terrible. And this stupid idiot at customs, we, uh, he asked me to have a look at my wallet. I can still remember him looking through my wallet. I don't know what he was looking for. I mean, what would you possibly have in your wallet that was contraband? <laughs> anyway, there was, I'd been riding to this young lady while I was away, who I'd met on the train when I left Singleton. She was going to Sydney and I was going to Adelaide. And I'd just written to her and written to her. She was no specific girlfriend or anything. But she was there to meet me with two of her other girlfriends. And they were living up at Potts Point. So they said I could go and stay with them. I hadn't told my mum and dad I was coming home. So I went and stayed with them for a week. And and every morning I used to get up, I'd go downtown and walk around shops, never buy anything. I can remember just going into Woolies there on the corner of Park and George Street and picking things up and feeling them because I hadn't seen anything like this for 12 months. I was out of touch. Some shops must have thought I was strange, but I did that every day. And we'd go out at night and have something to eat, come back, maybe watch a bit of telly, I can't remember. But anyway, after a week, I decided it was time to go home. So I put my uniform on, went out to Kingsford Smith and said, I'd like to go home now. And they put me on a plane and sent me to Koolingatta. My parents' house was actually right at the end of the runway. I just got off at Koolingatta Airport and walked home, walked in the front door. Dad was at work.
0: Mum was pretty surprised to see me. They say war changes you, and for Kerry, he had to readjust to normal life.
1: Well, my parents had this home, it was just, in those days, it was just a small three bedroom, single bathroom, brick home at Kira in in Koemangatta. There was this high window in the bedroom, but there's a normal window on the side, and this high window, and I'd often find myself waking up in the middle of the night and standing on the bed looking out this high window. And then I'd look out and think, oh, I'm really home, I'm home, I'm back. Because the, the weird thing about the whole time in Vietnam was, the most, the most dangerous period was when I was out driving by myself up and down Route 2 between Nui between Dat and, and Za Bang. And I never thought anything about it. And then the last two weeks when I was in Nui Dett, in the main base, that was when I was really concerned and you'd hear a, you hear like an M60 going off in, you know, shooting off into the, into the bush at night, into the, into the rubber. And you'd think, not now, like, nothing can happen to me now. I'm two weeks from home, I've, you know, I've got to make it. You never felt you'd really made it until you stepped off that plane at Kingsford Smith Airport. And so even when I was home, I was checking that I was really home and that probably went on for a week or two. Because the sort of unit I was in, most of my friends in Vietnam were Vietnamese. If you take the 15 or so people I actually served with that I spent Saturday nights with in Nui they were nowhere to be seen. I had my friends pre-army. I just, I just forgot. I, I just forgot about everything. Got on, tried to get on with life. Sometime in the January, I rang the old company I'd been working for in Sydney. So I said, oh, I'll come back to work, and that's what I did. I went back to work mm-hmm. and just switched off from everything. I never thought about it again, really. It wasn't until I joined the RSL here in, when I came to Cronulla in 60, I'd already met a bunch of other Vietnam veterans. I washed it out of my head really. Even the welcome home day, I remember that. And I said, I, I was divorced at the time and it was a weekend I was having with my three sons. And I said to the boys, you wanna come into a march in town with dad? Or do you wanna go fishing? And they said, oh, we go fishing dad. It's all right. So I went fishing, and I was glad. In some ways, I was. I was glad I didn't
0: go. It was many, many years before Kerry decided to join Cronulla RSL.
1: I think I might have joined in 2004, 2005, but I was still working. So, and I was flat out. So I never came to any meetings. As a Matter of fact, an old mate of mine joined at the same time I did, and he came to the first meeting. He rang me up at work. He said, "You got to come to the meeting, Kerry. It's all this." free food, you can drink as much as you like. But I didn't come until I actually retired. And then uh, I'd been here about 12 months or so. One of the old guys, Ray Hart, rang me out and said, Kerry, how'd you like to be on the committee of the Sub-Branch Social Club? And I said, if you ask me, Ray, I'll I'll do that for you, mate. So I used to, Ray was the president of that. So I I used to help Ray with that. And that's because I, I found joy in looking after all the old Second World War vets and their widows. I, be, I believe that we owe this country to the, our veterans of the Second World War. Like, I've, I was in a war in Vietnam, but that didn't, that didn't save Australia. But these guys who fought in New Guinea and the Middle East, but specifically New Guinea, and Darwin and, the, and that, that area in the islands, They saved Australia for us. So I think we owed them and their widows a a great deal. I was asked to go on the committee of the sub-branch, which I did, I did the work as treasurer of that for a fair few years. And I was on the board for 10 or 11 years. Many things shape you in life of what you do, but it's all done while you're young. Of course, I'm a product of my parents. uh, So some of the drive comes from my dad and my mum, the people I worked for. The second man who was my boss in the foundry when I came to work in Sydney, was absolutely a delight to work for. One of those people where you're allowed to make mistakes, but as long as you tried to do things, and you didn't have to do everything his way. But If your way failed, he'd then ask you to do it his way. I then went on to the army, and uh, I won't say anything about the people I had in the early part of the army, but the boss I got in Vietnam, Dai Cunningham, superb person, again you learn, you learn how to manage people by the people that manage you. I always learned about life that I was fortunate. I went to Hong Kong when I was 15 and saw people with one set of clothes, sleeping under four sticks and a bit of rag, lining up with a bowl once a day from UNICEF to get their food, and realised how lucky I was. So I've always believed, as long as you've got somewhere to sleep, something to eat and clothes on your back, then you should be happy.
0: Kerry makes mention of a man he called Pommy Renshaw, and wanted to pay special tribute to him. Pommy served with HQ Delta Company in the 6th Battalion and fought in the Battle of Long Tan. He passed away in 2021.